You are listening to Kubernetes Bytes, a podcast bringing you the latest from the world of cloud-native data management. My name is Ryan Walner, and I'm joined by Bobin Shaw, coming to you from Boston, Massachusetts. We'll be sharing our thoughts on recent cloud-native news and talking to industry experts about their experiences and challenges managing the wealth of data in today's cloud-native ecosystem. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, wherever you are. We're coming to you from Boston, Massachusetts. Today is May 13th, 2022. I hope everyone is doing well and staying safe. Let's dive into it. Speaking of doing well, Bhavan, how are you doing? (laughs) (laughs) I've seen better days. (laughs) Uh, As you can see, like I have a bit of cold going on. Uh, My voice isn't the best, so I'm pretty sure Ryan is going to do most of the talking in this episode, but... Uh, I think there's a reason for not feeling well. Like last week, and I had just too much fun at Bryce Canyon National Park and Capitol Reef National Park. I, I think uh, I was telling you on Slack, maybe I, I, I we hiked like 20 miles for wow. uh, close to 20 miles in like three days. And awesome. <laughs> uh, I, one thing I realized is I like hikes that go up first, and then on the way, on like when you're <laughs> tired, you have to come down. Uh, Bryce Canyon, not the not that way, right? Like it's a canyon, so you hike down, you have fun going down, and then you know, you really hate yourself and you have to hike. Uh, like and then eight mile hike, last one oh, and yeah. a half mile is like fifteen hundred feet of elevation. So yeah, <laughs> I uh, I completely agree with you. I um I've done those types of hikes, mm-hmm. you know, even multi peak hikes. If you're doing mm-hmm. mountains, like you do two peaks in a row, but you got to go back back over yeah. them, basically, unless there's a route around. Um, mm-hmm. I, I, I spent some time in the Grand Canyon, and obviously the same thing. But the uh, guide that we used. Um, we got a bus ride out, which was awesome. So you did all the like, you did like five days in the bottom camping and rafting and then they bus you out. It was the best thing ever. You're like, all right, I'm exhausted after these five days. Next time, get a bus out, I guess. Thank you. (laughs) Cool, cool. It was good, you know? Um, We spent a lot of the time sort of outside, hanging around. Um, nice. Still doing a lot of yard work, so you know, boring stuff, I guess. No bright, bright <laughs> no uh, national park or anything like that. So. No, yeah, I need to catch up on my yard work. So a uh, week before we left, I think my wife and I went to Home Depot, bought like weed killers and and new rakes and stuff like that, and then we just like did some raking and then just got so bored and tired. We we haven't done the weed killer stuff or planted new seeds for the grass. It's just like okay, things to do. Things we'll eventually get to. The joys of uh, new home ownership. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> hey. It's It's a blessing and a curse, right? (laughs) All right. Well, um, today's topic is uh, how backup and restore work sort of at a one-on-one level for Kubernetes. But before we dive into that and sort of dig into it, be Bobbin and I talking about um, uh, the topic today, no guest today, Uh, we'll dig into sort of various uh, aspects of it. Uh, But we do have a bit of news. Uh, Bobbin, why don't you kick it off? Yeah, uh, I think one big thing was Kubernetes 1.24 um, getting mm-hmm. GA. I know the release was pushed back by a couple of weeks because of a bug in Golang. Uh, but the release is officially out, I think, May 3rd, maybe 10 days back. Um, and it has a, a whole lot of new features, right? Uh, one of the important ones is the Docker shim being removed. And I know we covered that in some detail uh, in one of our previous pods. Uh, so like again, just a recap, right? Docker shim is no longer valid when you're running Kubernetes 1.24. Uh, other features, uh, 
beta APIs that were available, like uh, that you can use in Kubernetes till 1.23, are off by default. So uh, again, I think people were getting the uh, the 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 image that oh even if it's a beta api it's still supported i should i can run my production environment that's not the case <laughs> like beta apis are a name that just for that reason uh, they are off by default you can still turn them on but again just something to keep an eye out for and uh, i know you have a couple of storage ones i'll, I'll skip those but then i saw the entry plugins uh, have uh, the migration has begun uh, I think in this release, they tackled the Azure disk and OpenStack Cinder driver. They are now officially migrated out of tree and into their CSI plugins. Uh, you'll see more and more of these entry plugins being migrated out in the future releases. And then another uh, interesting feature when it comes to networking in Kubernetes. Um, again, I, I, I didn't know this was an issue, but uh, apparently if you ha are using static IPs, uh, in the same range that you assign Kubernetes to use for service-to-service -service communication. Now there is a feature that you can turn on and you can allocate certain IPs or reserve certain IPs in that range that you can manually assign. So there's no uh, collision, IP collision inside your uh, service cider. So something that you can start using uh, uh, if you upgrade to Kubernetes 1.24. But yeah, that's, that's like a quick recap for 1.24. And before we move on to well, the other things that I had, Dan, do you want to cover your storage enhancements? Yeah, so as part of those releases, um, or just release, sorry, 124, uh, the big one is volume expansion is now a stable feature. So um, if you probably have been working with persistence in Kubernetes, you might have already used this feature and didn't know it wasn't stable because I, for the most <laughs> part, it works pretty well, right? Yep. And that's, I think, the, the main point here is that it's officially uh, generally available. And this is um, when it first was released, I believe, alpha in 1.8. So it's been I know. a that's long time. Long time back. <laughs> <laughs> um, and beta in 1.11. And now we're, we're here at 1.24 in this GA. So uh, this gives you to uh, the ability to expand the size of the volume, PVC, specifically on the fly uh, through the YAML um, and other sort of automated uh, fashion. So it works really well. Um, lots of driver support. We'll put the um, link in the show notes where you can look up you know, how online expansion uses uh, versus offline expansions, etc. And uh, the other one is really about storage capacity. Um, and storage capacity is also GA in 1.24. So this is really um, something that I think we we'd have never talked about on the show. Um, and it's something that's definitely going to be more and more interesting as we migrate to use CSI uh, solely, mm -hmm. right? Um, this gives the ability to CSI to kind of publish the available storage. Now, Kubernetes itself as a scheduler is aware of things like memory, CPU, and is able to schedule pods based on sort of known capacity, right? So intelligent scheduling to say, I can't just try to put this pod on this node that I know is full, it's not going to run. Um, <laughs> this brings uh, storage into the mix to say, okay, there's enough capacity as far as network compute and storage, uh, network and compute go. Um, now, how do I know that when I schedule this pod here that there's going to be available storage? Now, whether this is sort of um, available is based on the CSI driver capability. Um, but the point being is that they can say, you know, we have, we will have no problem provisioning this um, uh, this volume for this container. Now, there are um, things that aren't perfect about this solution. We'll put it uh, the link in the show notes as well. But, you know, there's a couple problems they line out. 
that they haven't quite solved yet. Things like what if um, you know a single container has more than one volume? It's not as good at uh, detecting and, and kind of reconciling the capacity there. If say one would have no problem being provisioned, but the other wouldn't. Um, mm -hmm. And then there's sort of the ability uh, of integrations like um, auto scaling into you know how this works. And so there's a connection between sort of this capacity. Um, uh, integration and the autoscaler, which um, does have some limitations as far as, you know, uh, tying into CSI, but there is actually the autoscaler has the ability for you to kind of set a, a feature flag to get that thing working too. But anyway, really cool stuff, I think, coming out of the 124 release. And these are um, definitely two that stood out to us in the storage space for sure. And then uh, just to follow up, right, uh, more around the storage and data management ecosystem and Kubernetes, uh, EDB actually open sourced their Postgres operator. So now there is a new operator called Cloud Native PG that's available for anyone to use. I think it has the Apache license associated with it, so you can contribute and start using it. Uh, one of the benefits, again, since EDB has been working on this and has customers that, already, that were already using it. The version that's generally available in open source right now is not 1.0, right? You, you get that benefit of customers using this for a year and a half already in production environments. So now, even though it's an open source project, it actually is back, like it, it came from a vendor who, who used to work on this. So I think it's 1.15 or something like that. So they definitely have a head start on, and it's not something that just, somebody put together in a couple of months. This has customers that have been running it for a year and a half. And I think um, Gabriel, one of our previous guests on the podcast who spoke about Postgres, uh, worked on this. And I think he, he, he reached out and said, anybody who's going to KubeCon and wants to learn more about this, he'll be definitely happy to. And they also have like a meet and greet that EDB has organized. So if you are going to KubeCon next week, uh, do check that out. And I think based on that, I see from show notes, you have something really interesting for people headed to KubeCon. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Before I dive into that, I do want to say that, you know, that operator has a lot of great stuff. It has, you know, advanced sort of architectures for disaster recovery or standby clusters or even PG Bouncer. And, um, you know, I think we had a conversation about operators in general uh, recently, and this is one of those ones that, you know, I would gravitate towards first if I was looking at Postgres just because of its use and sort of how much is built into it. Uh, mm -hmm. It's a really good example of, I think, what operators can really um, provide as far as value goes. So really cool stuff. I'm going to definitely look at it myself. Um, yes, this uh, next and last uh, piece <laughs> of news, I guess you could call it news. Uh, Alex Ellis put out uh, a really cool blog called um, A Quick uh, when in Spain, a quick primer for KubeCon. If you are going to KubeCon in Spain, I think many might be wondering, do you have to know Spanish? Well, <laughs> he lays it out and says, you know, there's a, obviously a lot of people that learn English in that country, um, but uh, and you may also have Google Translate on your phone. Mm -hmm. But this whole blog is really about some basics of Spanish, of, you know, introducing yourself to people, how to order a coffee, how to order a food or eggs in Some particular, <laughs> um, you know, how to say what day it is, uh, how to ask for directions, you know, how to speak socially, like where are you from um, and uh, what you like doing. So I think it's just a really cool blog um, uh, to dig in for those who may be wondering about this stuff and are going to Spain, maybe for the first time, uh, maybe have no Spanish background at all. 
uh, and uh, have a little bit of wary, I think go ahead and read this. I think you'll find it super valuable. Maybe you know, even print it out, even in your I know. I'm, I'm going to take this article. I have a friend who's traveling to Spain, not for work, just for fun. Uh, in, in July, I'm going to like send this article to him. Like, okay, make sure you at least know these phrases. There you go. That's super useful. So um, I had to put that in there. Yeah. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, offering professional grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. All right. So, that is the end of the news, and we can dive into today's topic. So again, as a reminder, today's topic is how backup and restore works 101. And um, we are going to be focusing on backup and restore from a Kubernetes perspective. Um, and, and when we say that, really, it's how does backup and restore solutions or mm -hmm. projects work in the Kubernetes space? Yeah, so why don't you get us started? Like, what is backup and restore? And like, is from 101? <laughs> yeah, that's a good question, right? <laughs> so what is backup and restore? Um, you know, so there is the need to uh, take copies of data often, right? And um, when we're talking about an application that has state, and often we're talking about databases, um, but not always. There's a lot of applications out there that do provide you know, some level of state and save it down to the disk on the particular node. So reminder, you know, Kubernetes runs on a set of nodes and your pods or containers run on those nodes and they may or may not um, pro uh, provide a way to write state to disk. Uh, this is where PVCs come into play, where CSI comes into play. We won't recap all of that, but the point is, if they are using state, that state typically will be uh, only written to that volume. Now, many storage systems have some sort of, you know, data replication, so it might be replicated on that back end. But the point being is that it's written to that one place. It's probably done some sort of replication, but there's no real um, method to move that thing out of that production environment, right? Mm -hmm. And the key here is that you want to make a copy at a certain point of that data. Um, maybe uh, you have an infrequently accessed system or a system that's used a lot more during the day uh, than it is during the night. Um, and you want to take backups at a certain time. Well, you want to copy data throughout the day or possibly at certain times and move it somewhere that maybe isn't affected by certain failures, right? Um, and failures can mean a lot of things, right? It can mean physical uh, uh, failures. It can mean physical disaster. Uh, it can mean, you know, uh, bad actors, hacking. We'll talk about that a little bit mm -hmm. later. And the point being is that you want to move data off to a maybe a cheaper type of storage and have the ability to bring that data back in in case of that disaster or move it around, right? Yeah. So really at its core, I think, I would describe backup and restore is a method for copying and moving data. When you really boil it down to um, its core facet is you are just making a copy of certain data uh, and moving it out. Now, backup in Kubernetes is generally different. We've, we've talked a little bit about this on different podcasts, right? In the sense that for uh, backup and restore for VMs and where we've come to for Kubernetes, I think there's a lot that 
um, backup systems have had to adopt and change in order to understand Kubernetes. Um, mostly the fact that applications are no longer contained in a single VM or node, mm -hmm. um, and they have to understand how to capture all the metadata associated within Kubernetes cluster, as well as the physical data and move that thing around, right? N not that that's a requirement. You can definitely get away with just making copies of volumes and um, you know, managing a whole slew of processes to um, manage the metadata to bring it back to life. Uh, but you know, it's something to be said there. Yep. And like uh, clearly, right, backup and restore when it comes to Kubernetes is definitely different. But based on your earlier point, I wanted to highlight that some things don't change. Like even with virtualization and with people that were running and man managing and backing up virtual machines, mm -hmm. they we everybody knows that snapshots are not backups. So if you're just storing something local and maybe you have a snapshot of the virtual disk, that's not enough. You need a backup to restore from a failure. Like if you lose your VM, your snapshot won't be uh, important. So even if you have a snapshot of your persistent volume uh, stored locally on your Kubernetes cluster, what if you lose your cluster? Or like you, what if you lose your entire namespace and all you have is just a snapshot of the persistent volume? You need, as Ryan said, right? You need that entire state. Like you need the, the Kubernetes objects and the deployments uh, the objects that you had you need all the application data all the configuration and the persistent volume so it has to be a whole group of resources rather than just a single entity yeah that's a good distinction right i mean if we if we take another step it's a snapshot is a backup when it's moved off its primary location pretty mm -hmm. much right uh, not to say that's a remote location it can be moved to a local backup right you could definitely have a local backup it's just not where it originated um but uh you know there's a whole bunch of we i think we've talked about the golden uh backup rule before where you sort of have a local mm -hmm. and then three to one a remote yeah exactly <laughs> um so there's there's many sort of aspects to why you'd want to use backup restore um you know from just recovering from disaster as we talked about already to you know just compliance reason you know keeping <laughs> data around for a long time yeah, I think uh, one of the things that I use in my presentation is that that so again, this this might be an older uh, piece of information, but when GDPR came out, they specifically had a, a condition in it that to be compliant with those regulations, you need to have regular backups, and and you need to prove that in a, in 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 to able to be able to show that you are actually compliant with those regulations. So yeah. uh, even if you don't care about your data, I think to just comply with regulations, you need backup. <laughs> yeah, if someone tells you you have to have it. <laughs> There you go. That's yeah. a good reason. <laughs> um, yeah, I think, you know, I think this next item we had here, which was, you know, why do we really think differently about backup uh, and restoring Kubernetes? That sort of ties into uh, the, the state in which we have to uh, take a backup. I think, mm -hmm. you know, technology itself has, if we, if we kind of focus on technology first, the technology itself has changed, right? Yep. Um, meaning that you can't, you can't necessarily just take what you've used for backup in the past and just apply it to Kubernetes. I mean, you could. I mean, there's definitely, you know, rolled solutions with things like rsync that you could get away with, you know, moving data from here to there. They may not be the most efficient <laughs> or or a solution that's built for, you know, uh, a backend you know, data system, which targets, you know, you know, loans and volumes and move those 
moves those around or um, you definitely can't take something built for something specific like KVM or, you know, vSphere mm-hmm. and apply it to, to Kubernetes because there's a whole new set of APIs, a whole new set of how applications work, a whole new set of uh, architectures of how applications are deployed. So yep. that's the core a reason why we say, you know, we have to think about it differently as as um, as we think about our backup restore I know, I know. and how to do it properly. If you think about the journey, right? Like, uh, I think, again, this is something that most people might know, but I just like to reiterate. Uh, when we moved from just bare metal or physical machines to virtualization, we had to modernize the tool set around that ecosystem, right? So you couldn't just back up your underlying servers and assume that all the virtual machines on top of it, on top of your vSphere host or KVM host were protected. It's the same set of thing. Like you chose, you chose a solution that spoke to that vCenter APIs and I and enumerated all the virtual machines that were running on those hosts and protected those. Uh, the same approach, the same shift in mindset is required when we are talking about Kubernetes. Um, mm-hmm. No longer is a, is a tool that can just talk to your vCenter API, for example, can tell you what pods you have running on your Kubernetes worker node. You need a tool that can talk to the Kubernetes API server, help you list all the different namespaces, all the different Kubernetes objects and volumes and everything that you have running on top of your cluster and help you protect that. So again, we I, I think... Uh, not not me specifically. I didn't go through the bare metal to virtualization uh, transition. I directly started in virtualization, but I think we have people in the industry who have gone through the first transition and know that, okay, understand that there are differences uh, needed. Or there are differences and they need to look at a modern solution that can work with Kubernetes as well. But just to draw, to make that point obvious, like there is a change. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, I, I agree completely. <clears throat> so... The next question we have is, you know, what types of backups are there? Now, uh, I think this question is really directed at um, the types of applications and ways in which we back up those applications. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, I think we start with what what applications are we running? So in this podcast, we talk a lot about stateful. So there's obvious ones like databases. Then there's stateless web servers, um, you know, business logic in between that may not be running state, but has some mm-hmm. sessions, those kind of things. And backups, um, not not you don't necessarily need to uh, back up all of it, but you may want to take a snapshot of sort of what that entire a connection of pods and, and containers looks like when you're, um, you know, working with a backups sort mm-hmm. of scenario. Now, I will say, I think the the organization and how it uses Kubernetes will probably change how you look at this problem. Meaning that if you're, you know, a smaller organization, you don't have a lot of Kubernetes clusters. Maybe you're you're actually only working with one or two database types um, or stateful services, um, it may make sense to just use a backup tool that's built for that specific application. I think we had a great conversation the other day about, you know, MySQL or mm-hmm. Postgres CDB in the past of, you know, each one of those solutions has its own backup tool or tools, right? Um, and in, in a lot of cases, they work great and they were built for the thing. So why not use them? Well, I think it's really a matter of scale, right? Um, Kubernetes is built in a way in which it enables you to, to run 
many, many thousands of applications across a organization if you wanted to, right? So if you're at that level of scale, many teams might be using a slew of different uh, data services and for a DevOps team or infrastructure team to offer a backup service, right, to Mm -hmm. their customer, internal customer, um, they may need something more generic, right, versus app specific. Yep. Now, I will say that it doesn't mean you shouldn't consider anything that has to do with the application specific nature of of backups, right? I think there's a lot of solutions out there that will provide you with a generic solution, which takes sort of a a snapshot copy of of data that's, um, you know, in runtime, Uh, make sure that's a consistent and, you know, crash consistent a snapshot, take that thing and offload it to a remote, you know, backup target. But a lot of those solutions do also consider what application you're using, because I think they know this about, you know, the individual teams that are running these applications. They may want to trigger something application specific. And and we've seen this in a number of different products and solutions out there where, you know, you can take a backup snapshot, but before you do that, run some ad hoc commands, right? So if you're running a, a Cassandra cluster, you can flush data to Mm -hmm. disk using the um, Cassandra CLI Uh, or likewise the Postgres or MySQL CLI. You can run specific commands to freeze data, flush it to disk, you know, even offload oplog and MongoDB to a certain file and then snapshot things and offload it. Right. So you can, you can definitely take advantage of the application specific needs, meaning you're not you're not just saying to your developers, oh, we have this one solution, you have to use it this way, and you can't now you know, use anything, any specific <laughs> tool for your data service or staple service that you've used. I think this is the industry being aware of those needs. Yeah. And so like next question I had for you was, I know we have had discussions around operators and, and custom resources. How do we back that up? Like, how do applications that rely on these custom resources uh, can be successfully backed up? Yeah, so that's definitely something I would put in the category of like what you need to be aware of, right? Um, Mm -hmm. Backup solutions for Kubernetes, whatever way you look at it, are new. (laughs) <laughs> so um, there's still a lot of change going on. They're um, they're imperfect in a in a good way, right? So they're designed for the cutting edge, and it just so happens to be that that cutting edge happens to be Kubernetes, and it comes out with a new version all the time, right? So um, there's a lot of change going on. That's a good thing. But the point is here that you know things like operators. Um, and CRDs uh, provide you with flexibility at the sort of control level, being able to define an application uh, based on a CRD um, that you have in your cluster. It's not necessarily going to mean that if you back up the thing that was deployed from that CRD or that operator, that it's just going to run perfectly in a destination uh, or a restore a restore mm-hmm. point, right? And the reason being is because um, those operators and CRDs act as sort of a, a control loop, um, uh, or I guess Big Brother. I don't, you know, <laughs> I don't know put this, but but they have to be aware of yeah. everything that you are uh, doing with those, right? So the point being is that if you have an operator that deploys databases from it. Uh, then you back up that only the database in a say a namespace and then restore it. If you don't have the necessary CRDs or operator in that new cluster, 
your yeah, Kubernetes won't know what to do with it. <laughs> Kubernetes won't know what to do with it, right? You, yeah. Because it is that custom resource. So you mm -hmm. have to have the custom resource available. And now not all backup solutions will necessarily be aware of, hey, this CRD doesn't exist over there. So should I back it up? Should I not <laughs> back it up? You know, uh, operators, I would say, is something that falls into the category of you shouldn't back up an operator. I just mm -hmm. did that. And maybe that's more of my opinion, but it is its own sort of yeah. control loop that does its own backups in, in many cases and assumes certain things. So um, there are solutions out there where you can say, you know, this application is part of a custom resource and this custom resource is X, Y, Z. So please be aware of that. If you are backing it up, maybe take that thing as well and make sure to apply it in the destination cluster. But I'm of the... Um, I guess, opinion that the CRDs, the operators and everything is probably something you should consider as um, sort of your DevOps model of how you're, you're, you're deploying and getting that infrastructure ready. Meaning that, um, you know, there's always some part of a Kubernetes cluster that needs to be initialized. So mm -hmm. even if you're restoring, you now have to have a Kubernetes cluster that's ready for that stuff to be restored to. Now, does backup should backup restore everything needed for an application to run? I don't think so, right? There's there's definitely some administrative uh, sort of um, yeah, environment uh, specific things that yeah, the operator needs, right? To, to that run. should yeah, yeah, that should be deployed back into an environment before you run your restore. So this is more around procedure. I don't think my mm -hmm. point being here is that you know Kubernetes backup isn't um, you know a one-stop shop you still have to be aware of everything going on and understand how applications run to make sure that a your stores work and i know uh, you know i i worked outside of the vendor side for quite some bit and i learned a hard lesson of hey having backup and restore is not good enough you have to practice them over, <laughs> you know, make sure your stores work because yep. hey in a, in a disaster are they going to work you better know the answer to that right mm -hmm. um saying hey you know we're running the backups so we you know we can restore from we can restore don't worry about it it's not good enough right you have to actually do it and and kind of run through those you know same reason we do fire drills right yep. <laughs> i think in 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 my opinion is you got to do this with kubernetes as well Yep, makes sense. Like, uh, and the reason we we spend a few minutes on custom resources and operators is because it's the next thing, right? Like, if people in the, the Kubernetes ecosystem again has matured enough where people understand why you need a different solution for Kubernetes, but uh, operators are, are are a bit different. Like, uh, not all tools will support it, and you you definitely you need to test, as Ryan said, right? Like, test and make sure that. Uh, the solution whatever you're using can help you restore your applications and if they don't to 100% maybe change them or make notes like okay in, in my case I'll have to go ahead and uh, before I perform that restore operation I do need to install that operator so all of that will help you make sure that uh, when a disaster strikes you're not in the room panicking when there is a, 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 a no fault uh, I don't know post-mortem happening and you don't yeah. you're the <laughs> person who doesn't feel guilty in the room so exactly yeah it doesn't just stop at CRDs and operators right yeah. you know secrets sometimes you don't mm -hmm. want these things in backups or maybe they need to be different in a new environment yeah. um, I know one that's that bit me early in sort of the days working with these technologies is uh, namespaces and networking and and um, how service discovery works. So a lot of the times you can sort of build into your applications how it communicates with another service. Now, that communication may assume 
certain things like the uh, name of the namespace in the DNS record that it's contacting, meaning that mm-hmm. if you, you know you have a Cassandra instance in, um, you know, namespace one, two, three, it might be, you know, Cassandra one dot namespace one, two, three dot Kubernetes.io. <laughs> now there's a much, there's better ways to do this with things like, you know, service meshes and whatnot, or so you can just contact them through the, just a generic mm-hmm. name. Um, but if you're going across namespaces, I remember this was one of those things where, okay, you, you restore to a new environment. Maybe you don't have the same, or you don't want to restore to that same original namespace to test right. it. And, things break and you're like, well, my restore seems good, but everything's broken. Well, that's because the YAML itself is just basically being backed up, not transformed and restored. Now, there are there are solutions on both ends of that spectrum in the sense that you can be aware of these things and design your application in a way that's more forgiving to when it moves around from cluster to cluster or cloud to cloud, or there are solutions that you know backup and restore does have sort of transformations where you can say, I've taken this backup, now I want to apply a transformation on restore because I know of something that needs to change. Not, mm-hmm. des- not necessarily saying you're changing things as it's sitting you know, in long-term storage because there's a lot of ramifications there yep. <laughs> as well. So, um, but yeah, there's a couple different ways you can tackle that, but all, all, all the more reason to you know, test the solution. And again, like to your example, right? I I, I don't manage a, a production environment. I just do demos uh, for my day job. But I, I I think I remember using one of your demo applications and we had hard coded the value of the backend database and the, the namespace had to be demo. I didn't yeah. know that. That's <laughs> another I, example. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I spent so much time just trying to troubleshoot like, okay, why is this application not working? This was working on a different cluster before. <laughs> then I realized, okay, okay. Then the, 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 and the URL or the endpoint does matter. Yes. <laughs> yeah. There's. There's. We take shortcuts in uh, demoware <laughs> for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, that lesson learned there. Uh, you know, take a little more time to design it so you know what you know what's going to break when you restore it. Um, True. Yeah. Ran into that one a lot. <laughs> Okay, so I think uh, all of this might sound complicated, but we we see uh, and like a lot of overhead from a day zero and day two perspective. Like, okay, if I am a really big enterprise with uh, tens or hundreds of Kubernetes clusters, how do I protect them? Do I need a backup solution for each cluster? And then managing the lifecycle of the backup solution itself. So uh, we have seen a trend in the industry where multiple vendors are releasing uh, an as a service solution where you can connect your clusters to a centralized endpoint and uh, just start back start those backup jobs and perform those restores so uh, like Ryan what are what are your thoughts like apart from the 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 savings or the time savings that you might have in installing and configuring such tools what other things can you think of when it comes to these managed backup solutions yeah i think the managed solutions are 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 really nice and i would actually argue that there's sort of different types of managed solutions, right? Mm-hmm. We, we talked about operators earlier and there's, there's managed operators, so to speak, right? There's, um, you know, certain database vendors that sort of deploy their own operator software in the cloud and let, and let you use it. Or you could look at an operator as sort of a managed software itself, because a lot of operators provide uh, a backup solution and tooling that you don't really have to care about how it works. You just use the thing, right? You say, okay, deploy my database and yeah, take backups, right? Um, Now, this 
this might be running on your infrastructure. So, you know, it's not true managed backup. And I would say for the truly managed service, you know, sort of the SaaS model, um, the benefit is really that Kubernetes is really abstracting the way in which we can run applications anywhere, right? Um, you know, Kubernetes can be deployed in all major clouds and um, as well as on-prem. And having to worry about you know how your backup solution uh, from a control standpoint and just security sort of role-based access control how users get access to that how they connect their clusters you know is the right networking setup so you know they can use both their cloud instance of kubernetes and their on-prem one i think that's where a lot of the benefit comes in right in the sense that these SaaS services sort of enable you to use kubernetes in this way across you know the the, the multi cloud sort of architecture um and i sort of see that as a feature model right and and also a reason why folks are using um managed um, uh, solutions in general. Now, I think there's there's managed solutions which apply across cloud, and then there's managed solutions per cloud, right? So you have you have managed like databases, right, in AWS, and those are great if you're like running you know things in AWS and you want to connect to something, but you don't necessarily use a third party. You could, um, and I think that's um, a big benefit when it comes to things like like backup uh, or just. I think managed services in general, when you think about SaaS, right? Just the the way in which we're moving from an ecosystem uh, into multi-cloud, um, which really enables some pretty interesting, uh, you know, use cases. Even when you think about sort of more advanced architectures, when you think about compute at the edge and Kubernetes at the edge, and you know, how do you do backup in those situations? Well, you know, right, managed solutions, I think, would really help you. Okay, so like last question, how do we uh, protect against any bad actors or uh, I know ransomware has been a huge uh, buzzword and like concern for organizations and enterprises for the past year, I guess. Uh, does that apply for Kubernetes and how do we protect against those? Yeah, you know, ransomware has definitely been super buzzwordy, but notably for a good reason, right? Yeah. <laughs> We've seen a lot of ransomware attacks. Uh, it's just malware, but yeah, ransomware being, you know, they take your data, they say, I won't give it back until you give me money. And you, sometimes you give it money and they don't give it back. And there you go. There's, there's your money, right? <laughs> Terrible way to lose your data. Um, uh, but I think in general, right, uh, the right backup and restore solution whether that's Kubernetes or not, in this case, we're talking about Kubernetes, needs to enable you to protect yourselves from mm -hmm. attacks like this, right? Whether it's, you know, an internal bad actor who is clearly messing with an environment and you need to, you know, shut that thing down and, and bring it back up in a fresh environment without certain access, right? Or a full-blown ransomware attack from an external bad actor um, that you want to make sure that you have data that hasn't been affected, right? Mm -hmm. uh, ransomware is notorious for getting in, spreading, and touching all bits of data um, throughout the stack and, and really kind of holding it hostage. So uh, backup solutions with um, things like object lock in uh, object storage for targets um, really enable this sort of use case where even if a ransomware, uh, you know, uh, or malware uh, uh, code gets in there and starts manipulating data, you're aware that your backups that are object locked, basically in a certain either governance or compliance mode, 
can't be touched, I mean, yep. or altered, right? So you know that data is going to be good because even yourself who took the backup can't manipulate it, right? Yep. <laughs> um, uh, and, and, and that's really enabling us to, um, you know, say, protect ourselves in a way that lets us move faster from attacks like these to say, you know, yes, we've been, uh, you know, we've seen that we're under a ransomware attack, but we can kind of shut things down and bring data back in an intelligent way that we also know uh, doesn't or shouldn't have been affected by these attacks and, and gives us the ability to restore over and over again in case we get it wrong, right? So th those are incredibly important. And I think, you know, backups are a huge part of this, right? We talk about compliance a lot. We talk about mm -hmm. disaster a lot, you know, a natural disaster, but more and more we're seeing reasons around security and hacking events. Yep. And in this case, like prevention is better than cure, right? Like you need to make sure that you have those uh, backups stored in something that has like an object lock where it's write once, read many, and you can't even mess it up if you want to, uh, uh, rather than having like a ransomware insurance policy. I, see, I think I've seen like TV advertisements or YouTube ads, not TV, but yeah, YouTube ads definitely for <laughs> there are companies around who will offer you insurance if you get attacked by ransomware. And I think mm -hmm. even the people that are attacking your organization, like those hackers, do know that you have policy. So they'll obviously ask you for more money. <laughs> Interesting. Might yeah. not always work out. <laughs> yeah, to them, it's great. You have yeah. people that will pay regardless. Mm -hmm. uh, it's really of whether you get your data back once you have made mm -hmm. that payment, right? Yep. Um, that's not always a guarantee. And then how useful is your insurance then, right? If your data is still gone. Um, mm -hmm. you just have angry customers <laughs> you may go under as a company in general. So yeah, you might become one of those statistics line items like, okay, yeah. X, X number of enterprises never recover from a ransomware attack. At the end of the day, we're all just trying not to be a statistic, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> let's, let's use backup and restore not to be one. Good point. <laughs> Awesome, man. Like, I think that's that's a perfect end to the episode. Let's <laughs> let's do a summary. <laughs> I, I don't want to talk about anything else now. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's jump into key. Let's jump into takeaways. So um, I, I, I'll go first in terms of takeaways. I think the big ones for me are, you know, backup restore is essential is mm -hmm. the first one. Uh, you have to think about it from the perspective of Kubernetes, meaning, you know, don't try to just apply what you've been already using for Backup and Restore. Look to see if, you know, that vendor, that tool you're using for Backup and Restore has something that specifically looks at Kubernetes. I'll even say that application-specific tools only get you part of the way there. They back up the data from the application itself, but not uh, from a Kubernetes perspective. So even if you use something like MySQL Dump, you get all your data, you still have a whole bunch of things to restore that to um, a Kubernetes cluster in general. There's a lot of you know YAML, metadata, secrets, all that stuff we talked about earlier. So look into that uh, Kubernetes-specific sort of um, you know way of doing things. And then I think the last one for me is is definitely you know the conversation around being aware of of all the moving pieces, all the mm -hmm. things that maybe backup solutions may not work perfectly with, like CRDs, or you might have to make sure in your restore environment and Again, test your restores, test your backups. Yes. <laughs> it's not good enough just to put them on a schedule and know that they're showing up in your target. Um, you know, go through the scenario. Yeah, I think that that was my one key takeaway. Like test, test, test. Like <laughs> yeah. even trust but verify, right? Like, okay, you took that backup, but at least make sure you can restore from it once every two months, once every six months. Make sure that whatever workflow you have actually works. So test, test, test. Absolutely. 
Well, that brings us to the end of today's episode. Uh, as always, you can find all of our episodes on anchor.com and send us a message there. There's also a whole bunch of links on there that can, uh, of course, help you find where to listen to this podcast. Also, if you are listening to a place, uh, a podcast, and it's we're not there, let us know. Send us yep. a message. We'll, <laughs> we'll get on there. We're on most of them. Um, but definitely go take a, take a gander at that. and. Um, next episode will be KubeCon recap, you know, so we'll be talking all things KubeCon. I'm sure there's going to be tons of announcements. There always is. This is going to be a big event. Um, I want to say, I want to in-person event as well, right? Like, yeah, I want to say post COVID, but you know, (laughs) I don't know if I can say that yet, um, but it'll be a, a fun show. If you are at KubeCon. Do talk about our podcast. Like, let everybody know that Kubernetes podcast or Kubernetes Bytes podcast is the podcast to listen to and spread the word. Like, we we count on you to get us more listeners. And being in person, being at a trade show, over a beer, over a coffee, or maybe at your lunch table, go ahead and talk to people about Kubernetes Bytes. Absolutely. Well, that's a good way to end today's episode then. Well, I'm Ryan. I'm Pavin. And thanks for joining another episode of Kubernetes Bytes. Thank you for listening to the Kubernetes Bytes podcast.